You know, there is such, such a debilitating power of sin in the life of the follower of Jesus. You know, without faith in Jesus, we're dead in our sins. And we understand that as basic principles of our creation, our sinful nature. But to be in faith, to have faith in Jesus, there's nothing more paralyzing to our spiritual life, our ministry, and our spiritual journey than when we fall into sin. You know, and maybe there are some of you here today that have loved ones that have fallen into sin after once walking with the Lord, and you can see the detrimental effects upon their spiritual well-being because of the choices that they have made. As we know, sin is missing the mark of God's perfect standards. Sin is that old English word. If you were lined up in an archery tournament and you missed the bullseye, they would say sin. It meant you missed the mark. You missed the bullseye. And so when the King James Version was being translated, they were using this word to describe the missing of the mark of God's perfect standards, sin. And when we decide to exchange our plan for God's plan, we find that there is liberation. We find that there is illumination. But yet when we exchange God's plan for our plan or someone else's plan, we're in a place of disobedience to the Lord. And in that place, no matter what the cause of our disobedience, it never ends well. It will never bode well. You know, what our country is facing, and you know, often our pulpits can be used to communicate agendas. It can be used to communicate policies or politics or social justice or whatever it may be. I think the main thing that our pulpit should be communicating is the word of God and the gospel. And it's all encompassing of every issue that we would face as an individual, as a family, or as a country, as a community. But what we see in our country and what our country is facing is very serious because there are many adults that are hurting, grown adults, men and women that are hurting terribly, and they're in disobedience to the Lord in their lifestyles. And if that wasn't painful enough, they're trying to condition the culture, beginning with our children, to accept or to believe that what they're doing in disobedience to the Lord is right, and that that disobedience to the Lord should find equity in every sphere of society. Yet what is never talked about, especially on social media and in the news and often even from churches, is that what is never talked about is the deep pain that this world is in. This pain that 100% of the time accompanies disobedience to God. And it brings such terrible psychological, emotional, and mental anguish, not to mention spiritual death. See, God has always, since the beginning, has always dealt in love with the truth of man's sinful condition. It's always been the truth in love. God has always and will always have a heart for man's restoration after he destroys himself through disobedience. And we should be the same way. We should be the same way today. 
Because there are people today that feel like they're so far gone that they might as well embrace what they've been doing for they feel that there is no going back. Man has been given a conscience. Man has been given commandments both by God. They understand their emptiness. They search for something to fill the void. You don't have to be a Christian or a churchgoer to understand the feeling of there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. I think we can understand the feeling of thinking that you're too far gone. I think we can empathize with that. I think we've all had certain experiences where we have felt that we went past the end of our rope. You know, case in point today with Jonah, the main character of our biblical story. Jonah may have never imagined that God would send him again. I mean, look at how the Lord had used Jonah. His reputation of being a man of God, a man who speaks as the voice of God, has now run from that calling, has deliberately disobeyed, and has found himself in a terrible place. I don't think Jonah would have imagined that God would ever have sent him again, let alone welcome back. Welcome him back, especially after disobeying him so terribly. You know... There have been so many different ways of describing the work of the devil and sin in a person's life. One particular way of communicating what describes or really what happens and is described on the spiritual level is something that I have found very true. These three words, which are blind, bind, and grind. These three words I think are very appropriate in describing the work of the devil and sin in a person's life. The devil blinds you to your sin. He blinds you to the righteousness of God. And then through our disobedience, the devil binds you or he enslaves you to that sin. You know, Skip Heitzig said recently, maybe this last weekend, he said that you never knew, and this might be a loose paraphrase, but at least you'll get the point. He said you never realize how irresistible sin is until you desire to be free from it. And so once you've been enslaved to sin, you've been blinded to sin, you've been blinded to the righteousness of God, and now you're bound to it. You cannot be, break free even when you want to. And once you've been enslaved, the devil grinds you until you're so worn out that you're eventually destroyed. Yet, there is a God in heaven who loves you even knowing everything about you, every sin, every hidden sin, every addiction, every wrong thought, every impure motive, every single thing, and yet God loves you. And he loved you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for all of your sins. And that if you have found yourself today in a position where you're contemplating whether or not you're too far gone, then I hope that this study through the book of Jonah brings you great hope. For if Jonah ever doubted whether after sin like his, whether or not after a sin like his, he could ever be restored to favor or service again, he did not have to wait long for an answer, nor do you. Nor do you. That if you're sitting here having royally blown it, unrepentant sin, 
wondering if God would ever accept you with the things that maybe you can't stand yourself for, there again, let me say it is a God in heaven who loves you and sent his only son, Jesus, that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so the word of the Lord, now in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Jonah, the word of the Lord came a second time. It says in verse 1 to Jonah, saying, dot, dot, dot. Let's now look at God's work in Jonah. Ironically, Jonah would appear in Nineveh as a sign, as a visible, tangible proof of divine purpose in his life and work. You know, I mentioned it was ironic For Jonah was sent to be a part of the work that God wanted to do in Nineveh, but he found himself a part of the work that God wanted to do in him. Interesting how that worked out. And often it's the case in our own lives that we're we're so, isn't it true, that we're so very much aware of the sin of others and their need for repentance that we don't realize that God has much to do in our own lives as well. Interestingly, the Ninevites, their sin was outward. Jonah's was inward. Jonah had the appearance of a man of God whose heart began to slip away. The Ninevites were just out there in the open in their sin. And see, the sinful condition of Jonah's heart was brought to the light when he was asked to do something that went against his own will. Do you realize that? that something impacted Jonah's spiritual condition that maybe somebody on the outside looking in would never have known existed. Maybe Jonah didn't know that it existed. But he did the moment the Lord told him to do something that went against the desires of his flesh. Interesting. See, Jesus, he was sent to a sinful world as Jonah was sent to a sinful city. But yet the contrast here is that Jonah said, my will be done, and Jesus said, thy will be done. You know, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, and I think this speaks to the hidden issues of the spiritual condition of our hearts where Jeremiah writes, and from the New Living Translation, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Did you know that you wouldn't be enticed by sin unless there was something sinful in your life? If you were dead in that area, it would be like speaking to somebody that was dead. They're not going to move. They're not going to roll over. They're not going to acknowledge a single thing that you say because it's dead. But the fact that you're enticed by it, it is actually showing you, it's showing us as followers of Jesus that there's an area of sin in our life. And that's why when this sin comes across our eyes or across our path, we desire it or it seems enticing to us. One of the key things that we need to see is that there are things in our own lives that we're not even aware of that are there until something comes across our path that entices the desires that we may have not even realized that we had or challenges our will that we didn't realize was so strong. 
I don't want to do that. I want to do this. I don't want to do what God's asked me to do. I feel like doing something quite differently. Where did that come from? I thought I'm a follower of Jesus. I thought I'm a Christian. Why am I, you know, bucking the system, so to speak, and going against what God wants me to do? Because there's an area that the Lord is now touched upon that is sin. Yet we see, and thank God for his mercy and his grace towards us. He was merciful. See, God, knowing this area of Jonah, was merciful to him. And that this mercy, God's mercy was at work. It was displayed in the life of Jonah, even as the Lord desired to display it in the lives of the Ninevites. Interesting. So here Jonah is thinking these Ninevites are sinful, wicked people. They deserve God's judgment. And now the Lord is actually saying, no, Jonah, there's areas of your heart that are not right. And this Ninevite situation, if you will, is going to bring those things to the surface. But when we repent, when we repent of our sin, when, when we're now seeing our heart displayed for us and we think, oh, that is not good, that is not right, that is sinful, that is against God. When we repent of our sin, we are immediately reconciled to the Lord. For God forgives, for God restores, for God reinstates. God forgives the sin. God restores the backslider. And then in this story, God reinstates the runaway man of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I like to read to you the five verses of 17 through 21. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And Paul says in verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, he says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as Though God were pleading through us, we implore you. Might I just add on a personal note today, if God were using me as an ambassador on his behalf, I implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, as... My children are getting older, and maybe you can relate to this. You know, Hudson just turned 13. I have a teenager in the house now. I'm very proud of that young man. You know, often with teenagers, you want to pray for them that they make it through their teenage years, and I have found it more necessary to pray for parents that they make it through their kids' teenage years. But one of the things that we're learning, and as you become a man, and, and as you learn about what it means to be a godly man. There's words such as honor, respect, trustworthiness, integrity, confidence. Typically, if we look at our story today, if we abuse the confidence that maybe somebody may have in us, seldom does it seem that we'd be forgiven. 
if we'd worked for somebody and we abused that confidence that we'd ever be employed again. But with the Lord, if we have abused this confidence or if we have been unfaithful when we were to be faithful, God freely forgives. He restores to favor after our rebellion. He recommissions unworthy servants. You, me. In Isaiah 44, verse 22, again from the New Living Translation, the Lord says, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. You know, in the world today, and maybe you've noticed this, but in the world today, there are no definitive truths. Truth has become relative. Your truth might be your truth, my truth is my truth, but if you're truly seeking truth, you realize that if you look to culture for truth, the goalposts are constantly changing. They're moving all over the place. And if you're truly seeking truth, you never find it. You never find it. Because what might be true today may not be true tomorrow. It depends on how people may feel about it because feelings have replaced facts. And then in the church, we have seen that faith has been replaced by fads. Yet if we have found ourselves victim to either of those things, where we have walked away from what the Lord tells us in his word, thank God for his mercy and his grace, that he forgives, that he restores, and that he reinstates. And so we see the mercy of the Lord at work. We see the justice of God at work here as well, because God's mercy was not without Joseph. I mean, without justice. Jonah was dealt with severely. He was dealt with severely in order to get him back to the place of righteousness. The Lord acted justly with Jonah. He was on a path of destruction and the Lord intervened. The Lord punished and the Lord corrected. And I've shared this before, but Hebrews 12, 6 says, for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. In our course of our studies, the Lord delaying in punishment does not mean that he is condoning. You know, often people will think, well, the Lord must think that it's okay because I haven't had any reprisals as of yet. No, the Lord's being gracious. The Lord's being long-suffering. But there will come a point in time if you are truly a son or daughter of the king that you will be disciplined in such a way that brings you to a place of acknowledging your sin. Because with God, because he is a just God, forgiveness is not a license to disobey. Neither the righteous nor the unrighteous, the wicked, those that are without faith in Jesus can sin and get away with it. You don't get to do whatever you want and have no consequences for your actions. But God's work in Jonah was a sign of God's mercy, his justice. And thirdly, it was a sign of God's unchangeable purpose. God's purpose was to seek and to save that which was lost. And in this case, it was the Ninevites. I am so thankful that 
With 100% certainty, I can say that God's plans are devised in wisdom and they will be accomplished. I'm also very thankful because there have been times that I thought that God had gotten it all wrong. Lord, this was a giant mistake. Lord, how come this did not work out the way that it was supposed to work out, Lord? You really dropped the ball on this one. I am so happy that God does not alter his plans to gratify the whims of man. Because if the Lord had answered some of my prayers, I would have been a very miserable person. I am sure of it this very day. God doesn't change his plans when someone doesn't like them or doesn't want to go along with them. So the purpose remained. What was the purpose? Jonah must go to Nineveh to warn them of their sin. And that's why the second calling of the Lord came upon this man. Now he was given another opportunity to do what he was supposed to do. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. The first time that a command was given to Jonah, he violated that commandment. It was violated by Jonah's disobedience, but God renewed it. It was a divine calling. Jonah fought against it. He reaped the consequences. The Lord got his attention. He's now ready to hear and receive from the Lord, and the Lord comes again. His plan didn't change. The word didn't change. And that's something that is so important for us today. You know, right now, and, 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 and this is a huge thing because of what's happening in our, in our culture, that there's no stability. People are all over the place, and they're screwing their lives up. They're hurting themselves. They're hurting others. There, there, there's no foundation for truth. There, there's no understanding of, of the great plans that God has for mankind to experience the, the fullness of the life that God has given them. But his word, God's word doesn't change. It never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And one of the characteristics of God is immutability, which means he does not change, nor does his word. And so... Jonah took the circumvented route to get back to where God needed him to be. And then guess what he found to be the same? The word of the Lord. There it is again. I went all over the place and I was on this roller coaster of a journey. And then I came back. And guess what was the same all along? God's word. So not only was this a divine commandment, this was from the Lord. This required also urgent and immediate action. Arise. Go. These were terms of incitement, like, come on, man, get up. Get up and go. This wasn't a way of describing, hey, be lackadaisical, or if you get around to it, or why don't you relax for a little while. The duty was imperative. And honestly, I have found in my own life, and maybe you have as well, that the quicker that I obey, the better it is. But one thing to note here as well. And I find this very, how can I say this? It's hard at times to wrestle with this concept, this plan of action. And it's this plan of action that God utilizes 99.9% .9 of the time, where he requires obedience before information. 
Hey, if you tell me and explain to me why, then maybe I'd be more inclined to obey. But that's not the way that the Lord works. He says, obey, and then I'll give you the information. You know, even in stepping out in faith, you might think, well, I don't have the resources or I don't know how, I can even ca- how I'm capable of doing this. And the Lord's saying, you obey and then the provision comes. You know, you remember when the priests were to carry the Ark of the Covenant, when I was talking to uh, Steve about this not too long ago, but we were talking about how they had to step their feet into the river before it was to part. God didn't part it before they stepped in. So the Lord comes to Jonah, I'm giving you a second chance. I need you to get up and move. I need you to go and do what I've called you to do, and I want you to preach a message that I have not yet given to you. Well, Lord, how am I going to prepare for this? Shouldn't I kind of go over my notes before I go and present myself before the king? What am I to do? There was a suspension on the revelation of the message that Jonah was to deliver. So this exact message that he was to be giving was not given to him at first. So God told Jonah, you arise, you go, then you'll receive the message. And so I would encourage you today that if God is calling you to do something, that you would first trust in him and obey him, and then he'll reveal the next step or he'll show you what you need to know. And I think the reason that God allows this to happen, where we have to first act in obedience before explanation or even further information is given, is because God is cultivating a dependency upon him. We're dependent on him. It's trying our faith through those simple acts of obedience with little information provided. And so God thus cultivated Jonah's dependence upon him, and he tried his faith. And we see immediate departure to Nineveh was required, and any further revelations would be delayed until the appropriate time. You know, it's been said, God will give enlarged views, greater strength, and more consolation if we practice what we already know. Broaden your horizons. Increase your strength if you just practice what you already know to be true. If you get hung up on the things that you don't know or don't understand, you will not receive the blessings that God has in store for you. You fall back on what you do know. You fall back on what you do understand from God's word, and you step out in faith in obedience, and the Lord will meet you there every single time. And so Jonah's second calling was divinely given. It required urgent and immediate action, but it was also very specific in its directive. The destination was still the same. The trial was not over. The dangers, they remain unhidden. Nineveh must be warned by Jonah. You know, in in the UK, they have this word to describe, you know, wasting time, and it's called faffing. You know, just faff about. You're like shuffling things around, but you're not doing anything. You know, faffing about, wasting time, trying to even busy yourself with other things does not make the Lord and his calling go away. Well, I'm just going to busy myself over here, and it's still there. The calling's still there. The directive is still there. The word of God is still there. No matter what you're doing over in this space. So it's best to just act 
speedily, respond quickly in obedience. And yet Jonah, man, what a job. He's not to concern himself about his message or its results. The message would be given to him when he was ready for it. But Jonah must preach the word, that message from God to him and then from him to the Ninevites. Jonah's message, though, wasn't going to be a pleasant one. You know, we have some great, great teachers in this church. Some great men and women that teach the word of God. And they're faithful to teach messages that are not exactly pleasant for people to hear. It's important as the scripture says, not, let not all men be teachers, for they shall receive a stricter judgment. It's important that if you're to open the Bible, if you're to communicate the truth, if you're serving in some sort of capacity that requires you to teach the Bible, that you would do so in a very simplistic and straightforward way, even the messages that you don't feel like giving. There are guys that I know that are in churches where they don't want to talk about certain things that pertain to sin or that are hot topics in culture that the Bible addresses. They, don't, they want to you know, try to steer as far away from those things as they can and they're very selective with what you know, they read from the Bible or how they communicate. And they become ensnared. As the Bible says, the fear of man does bring a snare. And if you're trying to pander to your audience, you'll find that you become enslaved to them. And as they are tossed to and fro, so are you as well. Jonah's message was not going to be a pleasant one. And if Jonah was to try, you know, hypothetically, you know, speaking to explain away or soften what was severe to the ungodly, it really, he'd be taking upon himself a double responsibility that he would try to water down God's message so that it's more palatable. He would be taking upon this double responsibility which would, been, which would have been the responsibility for the salvation of the souls entrusted to him, that there were men and women in that city that needed the gospel and they needed to hear the truth and he would also be taking upon himself again the responsibility for his own disobedience. And God has already chastened Jonah and he's already forgiven him. And it would seem that his experience was preparatory for his calling. And I have found, and I think we all can agree, that before we can proclaim mercy to man, we must first receive it ourselves. And there are severe trials and there are deep sorrows that are often forerunners of great trust and high distinction when it comes to service unto the Lord. Severe trials, deep sorrow, often precede the Lord using you in great, great ways. Great difficulties. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 51, verses 12 through 13. He said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. 
we learn these things. We experience what the word of God tells us and we then become living epistles read by those around us. We become living proof that God saves. He takes our failures, our sin, our regrets, our past. He forgives us. He cleanses us. He walks us through the most terrible times of our lives. He forgives. He restores. He reinstates. And here we see the work of God in Jonah, the man that you didn't think God needed to work in. But how comforting it is that God does not utterly reject the failure, but rather gives another, rather gives another chance for redeeming past mistakes. Lord, thank you for time after time forgiving me. Thank you, God, that you have given to me successive opportunities for the accomplishment of my life's work. You may have run from yours. You may have veered off the path, but the word of God remains, the calling remains, the work remains. Come back to where you need to be. Even as Jonah resumed his work with a renewed obedience. And it says in verse 3 and 4, so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh. Wow, what do you know? According to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was a four, or excuse me, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Now verse 4, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So what do we see? Jonah's obedience was prompt, and apparently God's chastisement as a heavenly father brought forth fruit and secured dutiful obedience. Jonah's obedience was complete. I mean, can you picture Jonah? And we touched on this last week. You have to know that being in the stomach of a great fish meant that the fish's digestive juices were at work on Jonah's body. He gets vomited out of the mouth of this great fish, and then he shows up to Nineveh. More than likely, most people believe that his skin was bleached. He was possibly bald for having his hair fall out because of the acidic uh, content of that fish's tummy. He was probably, you know, if you can even picture him, you know, bleached white skin, maybe even translucent, you know, everything from eyebrows, his hair's probably fall, fallen out. He had seaweed wrapped around his head. And he's like, you're all going to die. And you look at this guy and you probably pay attention. What has happened to this man? And he reeks terribly. And he's got this crazy message. Jonah received the message to be delivered, which was 40 days, and the time is up. And he delivered that message. It's important, I think, also for us as a church to understand in our current climate. It's important to notice that he didn't carry with him philosophy or scientific theories, nor any inventions of his own. He spoke the word given him by God. We need to preach the gospel. We don't preach reform. We don't preach morality. You know, morality is, hey, clean your life up. The gospel is repent of your sin and be cleansed. The Lord does the cleaning. The same applies today. The great works that have taken place in the past should not be regarded as isolated facts beyond accomplishment now. Our country needs a revival and the same God who worked in Nineveh is the same God that can work in California. 
And God did a great work in Jonah. And now we see God's work in Nineveh as we finish off with this last section this morning. Nineveh, as you know, as you've read along, was an exceedingly great city. But as you've probably noticed in our own country, there are many large, powerful cities that are vortexes, if you will, for swallowing up wealth and spitting out the crimes of mankind. You know, they, they, they just chew you up, they spit you out. Yet, the word of the Lord pierced through one of the darkest cities in history. Nineveh was warned. Jonah didn't waste any words. He only repeated one terrible phrase. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty days and you're done. This judgment was to be great, to be overthrown. Would it be fire sent down from heaven? Would it be another nation that would conquer them? Would it be a conspiracy from within? A revolt, a massacre? Would there be floods, fire, brimstone? I mean, there's 10 million ways to die. What would happen? They didn't know, but they knew it was coming. The judgment was imminent. The judgment was not only imminent, it was morally necessary because no one gets away with sin, not even the most powerful. Nineveh was warned, but guess what? Nineveh changed. They changed. Look at verse 5. So the people of Nineveh, they believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. If you look at the middle of verse 5, it says they believed God. How many words is that in? One, two, three, four, five, six. The sixth and seventh words, believed God. Do you realize today that if mankind would just believe in God, that social corruption would be checked, selfishness would cease to rule, hatred, violence, murder, cured. If man would turn to God, if you would choose to believe in God or to acknowledge his word, it always is accompanied by a recognition of your own personal sin. And this is what happened with the Ninevites. Sackcloth was a sign of mourning. That burlap fabric that would be an irritant to your skin and make you feel uncomfortable was meant to have a constant reminder, to give you a constant reminder of your sin. But you know what happens? If you're to believe in God, if you're to believe in his word, you will be grieved by the very thing that you thought was acceptable or the very thing that you tried to accept as acceptable in your own life. There is no repentance of sin without grieving over it. Repentance is preceded by grieving over your sin and also by humbling yourself. And it says in verse 6, Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid aside his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. I'd like you to pay particular attention to what we're reading about here. The king laid down his place of lordship. He laid down his luxuries. He laid down his position. He laid down his authority and he humbled himself before the almighty God. See, for man, when you're in sin, when you're in disobedience to God, you exalt yourself. You rebel against God. You rebel against God's authority. And you rebel against any authority other than your own. 
But when you recognize that you have indeed sinned, I have done something that is wrong against God, you are grieved. And then you humble yourself before the Lord and you ask for forgiveness. Lord, I'm sorry I've done such terrible things. I didn't realize I was blinded. I was bound and I was ground. I was beaten down. But I have realized the error of my way. I have realized that I have sinned and I am grieved by those things. And then I remove my place from being the Lord of my own life, determining my own truth, my own reality. And I acknowledge that there is one God and that I have sinned against him. And that I humble myself and I ask for forgiveness of sin and find that God is faithful to meet me exactly where I'm at. And to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I don't know if you saw a post that I made in the last couple of days regarding Nickelodeon. There's some very questionable content that's getting pushed to our kids, and I wanted people to be aware of it because I have small kids myself, and I understand that once things go in your eyes, it's hard to get them out of your mind. You know, Nickelodeon that's geared towards kids, kids shows, we're having some really against God type of advertisements and promotions that were happening. And little did I know that it would go to the extent that it did, but I've had some pretty extensive conversations about this over Instagram. If you're on Instagram, I'd invite you to to check it out. But there needs to be a voice that stands for what is truth, what is righteous, but done so in love and obedience to God. Because there are people that are hurting in this world. They've accepted, they've exchanged the truth for the lie, and they're reaping the error of their ways. And as those young people turn into grown adults, they want now children to affirm that what they're doing is okay. And it's causing the little ones to stumble. It's causing our little ones to be confused. It's causing our little ones a lot of hurt. And I think there needs to be a voice of moms and dads, a voice in the church that stands up for what is right and is not afraid. Because the ideology that is out there, if you try to argue with the ideology of the world and try to stay in their sphere, you're going to get destroyed. That's why you have to always fall back upon God's word. God's love for mankind, God's plan for every individual. How do you receive a right relationship with God and in so doing have a fruitful, amazing relationship with those that are around you? Parents, watch out for your kids. Parents, stand up. Church, be the salt and light in this world. You don't have to be a jerk to speak the truth in love. And it's not unloving to say that I disagree with this because God disagrees with it. Oh, you're narrow-minded and you're a bigot and you're hateful. No, listen, I didn't make these things up. But what I do know is what God's word says. And I know that you're not happy in the lifestyle that you've chosen. And I know that there's a lot of anguish that you deal with every single day. And even though you try to surround yourself with people that think the same way that you do and affirm you in your disobedience to God, you still know deep down inside what the truth is. And you are empty and you are lonely and you are searching for something more to fill the void that only God can fill.
And because I love you enough and care about you enough, I'm willing to say it. And hopefully it's communicated in a way that expresses the genuine love of God for all of this world. But see, when the word of God is spoken, and something that we take away here from our study in Jonah 3, the world will seek to deny the existence of God. That God has no place in any place in our life, in our world, in public, nothing. Not in this school, not in government, not in entertainment, not in music, not in anything. They'll seek to deny the existence of God. To deny God's written word, which is the Bible, and to deny the work of the Holy Spirit through the life of the church. Because when the work of the Holy Spirit is taking place, and I've seen this in a microcosm way, I guess you could say, over social media. There are two types of reactions. If the truth of God is spoken the way that it's supposed to be communicated, there are two types of reactions. There are two types of responses to the gospel, and they're actually laid out for us already in the book of Acts, and I'd like to read them to you real quickly. When Peter shared And 3,000 people gave their life to Christ that day. In the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 37, it says, when the people heard the message of Peter, listen to this, because I want you to pick up the key phrase in both of these verses because they're exactly the same. When they heard Peter speak, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? How can I make this right? How can I be forgiven? We're guilty. What can we do to change? And I'd like you to contrast this with chapter 7 of Acts, verse 54. Stephen gets up and preaches the message of the gospel, and it says, and when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. This is the same exact phrase that I just read to you in Acts, chapter 2, verse 37. Both groups heard the same message. Both were cut to the heart. The first group said, what can we do to change? The second says, they gnashed at him with their teeth. They got angry. And we know they eventually stoned Stephen to death. They attacked him. The same gospel communicated in the same great way had two different responses. And you will see that this very day. Those that will be cut to their heart actually is in both camps. Those that get angry and are nasty and those that are grieved and repent, they are both cut to the heart by the same message. The same message. With the Ninevites, it was the former They grieved over their sin. Repentance was encouraged by their leaders. And it says in verse 7, And the king caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king acknowledged that he had a wicked city that he ruled over, that they were violent, terrible people. 
But repentance was marked by signs of sincerity. Faith, true faith, will produce works. True repentance will show itself in the amendment of the way that you live your life. They did not think of mocking God by merely abstaining from food and, you know, changing their clothes. Really, just an outward appearance can convict of hypocrisy if not followed by a change of heart and conduct. Their sins must be given up. They must turn from their their evil ways. They were to cry out to God, not the idols that they had previously worshipped. They were to turn to the one true and living God. And that is the same message for us and our country today, that we would turn to the one and true living God who saves. And the king says, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? The Ninevites' repentance was prompted by faith. They believed Jonah to be the messenger from God, and they believed his message. I mean, generally speaking, faith works according to the nature of the thing believed. If that which is believed to be something dreadful and alarming... That faith may work through fear. And if there's a, a possibility of, a, of escaping, you know, do whatever you can. Their faith worked through hope. For absence of hope excludes the possibility of repentance. Had the Ninevites viewed their doom as inevitable, they would have been paralyzed, infuriated, or still more estranged from God. But they humbled themselves. They abandoned their contempt of God, their luxury, their cruelty, their violence, their their unrighteousness. It was given up. Lord, we turn from it. Their Their repentance through fasting and sackcloth and ashes was not merely ceremonial, but it was a spiritual and moral reformation. This wasn't just to clean up the outside. This was God gives grace to the humble. They just heard one short sentence of doom. Jonah's preaching was very powerful, very powerful. And where I conclude today is with the same powerful message that has Christ included in it. For you that feel discouraged, remember for your own encouragement that God delights to save. God restored God reinstated, God recommissioned this man that was a prophet of the Lord, that even through his failures, it led to one of the greatest revivals ever recorded in history. In history. And I wonder what the Lord wants to do in your life and how he wants to use you And what you may be running from may be the very best thing that God has ever planned for you. But you are looking at things that you can understand and you're not trusting in God who knows everything from the beginning to the end. And in verse 10 where we close, it says, then God saw their works, that God saw their works, 
that they returned, or excuse me, that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. For the Lord is not slack as some would count slackness, but he's long-suffering, he's patient. He's desiring that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so as you speak the truth and love to your friends, to your neighbors, to the world around you, as you tweet about it and as you use Instagram or Facebook and you use your media for communication, may the truth be spoken in love. And may somebody have enough backbone to stand for what is right, to speak as the mouthpiece of the Lord, you'd be surprised. The word of God will always accomplish what it was set forth to accomplish. Some may be grieved by their sin and they'll come to Jesus. Some may get angry and continue in their sin, but both will be cut to the heart because the word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. May we be faithful in all things. And may we step out in great boldness and in great faith, especially, listen to me, especially in the things that we don't understand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this church. We ask, Lord, that you would bless every person, every family represented here today. I ask, Lord, that you would move by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we go about our individual lives this week. I pray, God, that you would give us divine opportunities to share the love of Christ with those around us. Lord, I pray that we would not be afraid of what the outcome may be, but that we would be faithful messengers to communicate your word. And so, Lord, would you bless us? Would you keep us? Would you cause your face to shine upon us? Would you be gracious unto us? Would you lift up your countenance upon us and give us peace? In Jesus' name, amen.